0: Merry Christmas! Christmas. I threw you off there, didn't I? (laughs) Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and begin class with the prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this Christmas season to think about the advent and your coming to earth as our Savior. We ask so much that uh, your spirit will be with us and lighten our mind, and we, we intelligently and fully participate in all you've provided for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're starting a new quarter to the day. The title of the new lesson guide is um, Stewardship Motors of the Heart. And the title for our first lesson is The Influence of Materialism. And just before we get into the lesson, I have a clarification and correction to make. Um, An online listener emailed in the following. In the discussion back in Lesson 11, fourth quarter of 2017, it was stated that the reason for the existence of the black conferences in North American Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church date back to 1863 when the church was organized in a social environment um, that prohibited blacks and whites worshiping together or a black pastor preaching to whites. However, it wasn't until 1945 that the black conferences were organized. The reason was not racial prejudice and segregation in society, but in the SDA church itself. The first black pastor ordained in the church was Charles Kinney in 18. 1989, uh, at the ceremony, many whites left the auditorium in disgust and protest of the ordination of a black man. Um, well, first, I want to thank for the clarification, and I didn't do my historical research on when those conferences were organized. However, the fact that I got the date wrong actually does not change the point that I made. What was race relations like in North America in 1945? 1950? 1955. What was race relations like? Could blacks and whites drink out of the same water fountain? Could could blacks ride in the front of the bus? Could they use the laundromat with the whites? The bathrooms with the whites? No. There was terrible segregation, particularly in the southern states, and terrible discrimination. And so there was not equality, and they couldn't even go to the local church and use the same bathroom with the whites in the church. And so um, the point that I made, that that there was... for reaching a certain segment of society because the hardness, hardness of hearts of people in the society, the church made a decision to um, create conferences that would not have the racial tensions stopping the message from going forward. Um, and I pointed that out um, because they did that because of a cultural bias, not because of a biblical mandate. In fact, it goes against the idea that true Christians, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Um, We're all one in Christ, uh, according to to scripture, uh, or male or female even. And therefore, the same argument, in my view, the church made a decision, because of the hardness of hearts, to make an organizational adjustment to open doors for the gospel to go forward. That's the same reason why the New Testament church, in my view, had instructions about women speaking and teaching because of the women's role in that culture and the hardness of the hearts of the men in the society, they weren't prepared, and so they made some instructions about that. But it isn't the same thing as a a, a divine principle that that cannot be changed as culture changes, just like we shouldn't have the segregated conferences anymore, in my view. So anyway, I wanted to correct that and thank the person for emailing that in. So our first lesson, influence of materialism, look at the uh, study guide, Stewardship and Motives of the Heart. I think it's very insightful. The first thing you think of with stewardship, my heart motive. I think it's a very insightful insightful subtitle. It's really about integrity. Stewardship is about honesty, fidelity, reliability, trustworthiness. It isn't about money primarily. It's about motive of the heart. Think about it. If you were to hire a steward to manage your properties for you, what is the primary quality you want? If you were hiring a steward to be the caretaker for your children, what are the qualities you're looking for? Is, aren't the primary qualities heart issues that you're looking for? Integrity, honesty, fidelity, loyalty, trustworthiness, and then and then secondarily maybe skills in the. But if they don't if they have the skills without the integrity, you don't want them, do you? Right? Okay. So, do you think that's also true in what God is looking for in stewards for His kingdom? So what do you think prevents people from being good stewards in God's kingdom?
1: Selfishness.
0: Of course, selfishness. Absolutely, selfishness. Could it also be failure to recognize they are actually stewards? Could that be? Do you think differently when you're managing your property, your car, your money, your resources than when you're managing your boss's car, your boss's property, your boss's... Res- do you think differently about your decision-making? Might you use your resources to purchase something that you wouldn't use your boss's resources to purchase? Might you use your boss's resources to purchase something that you won't use your re- resources for? In other words, do you have a different filter going on when you're managing someone else's stuff? Do you think about your property as God's property that you are the steward of to manage? I often, I will tell you, I often don't think this way. I have to actually work to step back and go, okay, how do I use these resources? We're we're inculcated in our society between ours and not ours. Mine and, and not mine. That's mine. So as we think about being a steward for God, what kinds of things has God called us to be a steward of? I'm going to throw out money first, because that one everybody knows. Be the steward of money. Anything else besides money? Time. Oh, I like that one. That one, the, yes, it did get on my list. I, thought, I forgot it. It's there. Good. Time. Yes, a steward of time. What about time, money? Talents. Talents. Anything else? <laughs> oh, I like that one. Relationships. A steward of relationships. Health. Health. A steward of our health. Yes, that's a very good one. The earth. The earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, these are really good ones. I don't have all these on my list. Can you think of any parables of Jesus that dealt with stewardship? How about the parable of the talents?
1: Okay. said all of them. Some respect.
0: I guess you could make that connection. Um, but some are more obvious and direct. Like the parable of the talents. When you think about the parable of the talents, why did some get more, and some lose what they had. What was the reason for that? Fear. Fear, uh, I guess we're looking at the heart of the person who didn't use it. So fear was the motive in the heart. That, and why, though, did that then result in losing? Why did fear result in the losing?
1: It's a law.
0: Oh, I like where you're going. What kind of law?
1: The law of exertion.
0: The law of exertion. That's exactly right. And the law of exertion... It's built into God's design. It's a design law. It's not a rule. And I want to point this out because many people read the story and they read it down at level one through four thinking, well, the 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 manager gave them, you know, 10, gave them five, gave them one. Some invested and therefore the manager said, well done. And one didn't. So the manager took what he had and gave it to the other one. It's all done by the authority of the master and and that's, it's all arbitrary and imposed. No, it's design law. And what's design law? If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If God has given you talents or abilities, whatever they're, musical, artistic, mathematical, language, whatever your talents or abilities are, if you get education, practice, um, utilize that in in real work, your abilities expand. You get more abilities. And you will even discover some abilities you didn't have before you started working in that field. You add to your talents. But if you don't use it, you will lose it. This is a design law. Yes. Reading a book, if
1: you... If you want to walk in water, you have to get out of the boat. So it's sort of like you have to risk, and if you're going to accomplish something,
0: no, exactly right. There's a song I can't remember who it might have been Petra, but it may not have been a Christian group. But there was a song, and the lyrics in one of the song said, "The waters never part until your feet get wet." Remember the remember the Old Testament Israel when they carried the ark when they, the priests carrying the ark would step their feet in the water then the waters parted but not until they stepped in and there's a, there's a lesson kind of what you're saying yeah we have to put in our effort or we don't get the, the rewards we don't grow we don't develop what is the purpose as stewards for developing our abilities innate intelligence go to school musical abilities develop your skills what's the purpose as a steward of God to do so
1: Others helping other people.
0: Both of you helping other people. I was going to say to fulfill God's purpose for our life, but you've already. And I was going to go, "What's that?" But you've already nailed it. It's to love others, to help others. That's exactly right. And this week, as I was um, uh, preparing the lesson, I found this quote out of an old magazine called the Southern Worker. It Says the world, re- the world's redeemer clearly defines what our duty is to the lawyer who asked him. How he should obtain eternal life, Jesus said, what is written in the law? How read, how readest thou? And he answered, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus related the parable of the Good Samaritan and clearly showed that he is our neighbor who most needs our charity and help. We are to practice the commandments of God and stand true to the relation which God has designed shall God has designed shall exist between man and his fellow man. What, what relation has God designed that's to exist between us? It was never god's purpose that society should be separated into classes that there should be an alienation between the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the learned and the unlearned. But the practice of separating society into distinct circles is becoming more and more decided. God designed that those to whom He entrusted talents of means, ability, and gifts of grace should be stewards of His beneficence. Stewards? Now, all those things we said, nobody said a steward of beneficence, steward of love. A steward of His, bene- of his beneficence. And not seek to reap all the advantages for themselves. God does not estimate man by the amount of wealth, talent, or education that he may have. He values man in proportion as he becomes a good steward of his mercy and love. When you think of stewardship, do you think of being a steward of mercy and love? Yeah.
1: You you touched the the heavens, right? I've just learned something about the, the meaning of number one in their culture. Actually, the one that received one talent, uh, the one that received the most, because it's a matter of fraction, so the entire, the whole, is number one. And Jesus was talking about uh, the stewardship of good news at that point. So we are also stewards of this treasure, which is the good news about the character of God.
0: Oh, I like that. And so that would be the... The character of mercy, the character of love, we're the stewards of it. Is that what you typically think of when you think of stewardship? God has poured his love into our hearts, and of course, what does it say in 1 John 4.19? We love because he first loved us. We have to receive his love. And then we're able to share and give his love. And I will tell you right back to the law of exertion. If you want to be better in math or 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 art or or, or language, you have to practice that. If you want to be better at loving people, guess what you've got to do? Love people. <laughs> you actually like have to put it into practice. You've got to love people. That's it. That's why it's important that we share the good news. Share the love. Share what the Lord has. Brought us to understand and experience. And then the more you give, the more you will. Why? Why is it the more you give, the more you will receive?
1: The law,
0: okay, law of sowing and reaping. Okay, you reap what you sow. That's part of it, yes?
1: Okay, it's a law.
0: Okay, it's a law, yes. It's a sign. Here's the metaphor, just metaphor, but I like metaphors. Think about the garden hose on your house and the fire hydrant on the street. If you open them both up full, Which gives away more water? Which receives more water to it? The fire hydrant. The more it gives, the more it receives, as long as it's tapped into the municipal source. As long as we are connected to Christ, and we can't, we already said, we love because he first loved us. We're not the source of love. And so as we receive the love, the more love we give, the more love is poured in. But what happens if in your home, you've been getting nice, pure, fresh water in your home, And you turn the taps off and you walk away for a year. And a year later, you turn the taps on. Do you drink the first glass of water that comes out? But it was pure, fresh, clean water when it came into your house. Why won't you drink it? This is a metaphor, but it's a lesson. If you receive the pure love of God, but you hold it, won't share it, won't give, your heart will also stagnate, become selfish. The only way you keep the love pure is by loving other people and giving away. Yes?
1: I also like your example of if you have multiple children and you say, I love my child with all my heart, and then the second child comes along, and you love that child with all your heart, but you already love the other one with all your heart, but our capacity for love is infinite, and it just keeps growing and growing the more that we love.
0: Yeah, so exactly. So when you love the second one with all your heart, you're not loving the first one less. So how can we know if we can fulfill God's purposes effectively and successfully? How do we do that? One, we have to first actually know God. Everybody agree? Life eternal, they might know you. If we don't know God, we can't fulfill his purposes. And two, we have to surrender, open our hearts, and be filled with the Spirit. We don't have the power in ourselves to do this. Know God, surrender, and experience his renewal and Spirit that empowers us to do so. Without those two, even if cognitively we go, well, that makes a lot of sense, we still won't be able to fulfill his purposes. The title of this week's lesson is materialism. The lesson states in the first paragraph, the lure of materialism, the in- inordinate desire for wealth and for what we think wealth can bring, is powerful. This is basically talking about greed, isn't it? About the love of stuff, the love of property. Houses, cars, the pursuit of what money can provide. Now, let me ask you, is money evil?
1: No. No, it's love.
0: Is the love of money evil? Yes. yes. Why?
1: Because it consumes you.
0: It consumes you. What makes it evil?
1: Giving place is what's supposed to be there.
0: It, yes, it does. There's, absolutely true. Can we, can we get any more clarification, any more any more ass, insights into what makes love of money evil?
1: See if, if, if we back up a little bit to... Uh, money being evil, is it good? And I'm, I'd suggest that it's in suspended animation.
0: So money is neither good nor evil, it just is, is what you're saying. So the love of money, what makes the love of money evil?
1: It's what it turns you into.
0: What it turns you into? Okay, let's back up and go a little deeper then. How about this question? What is the root or the drive that leads to the love of money?
1: Fear. Selfishness.
0: Fear and selfishness. Because what does who, people who love money, what are they loving about the money? What is it about the money that they love?
1: Ah, oh,
0: oh, now you're getting to it. See, this is the real problem with the love of money. What what they perceive that it does for them makes them feel valuable. The more money I have, the more valuable and the more important I am. Um, the more money I have, the worthwhile I am. The more, more, more power I have, the more security I have, uh, the more achieved, the more fulfilled, the more enabled. Uh, money gives them the sense of being realized, valued, and whole as a person. The people who love money. That's what they love. In other words, it's a love of something that they're seeking to make them whole. Can money do that?
1: And it's not just rich people who love money. Poor people can love money every bit as much or more than a rich person.
0: Yes, and so people who love money, love money, for all these things that I was describing as doing for them, do they tend to be givers or hoarders? Hoarders. And if they give, they're usually only giving in some construct in their mind to get more in return. Some investment, something to get more back, to get more prestige, to get more advantage for self. It's all about building and expanding the self. Hand somewhere. Yes.
1: The love of money helps a person to work harder. And so sometimes, you know, we have good Christian people who love to work and produce and to have more factories and produce to share. And like you said before, love is not is infinite, like Glory said. So you could still love money for the purpose of passing it on and you can still love the Lord, and you can still love other people. So.
0: Okay, so I'm going to clarify your language a little bit. The way you described was an appreciation and value for how money can be used in a greater cause. And so you understand its purpose, and you value it in the same way a person in the desert may value a camel to get across the desert. But they don't love the camel to make them feel like a whole person unless they're loving money, and camels are part of the societal money. But they, they, it's not a love issue, it's a value issue, and under a larger, grander purpose. That's perfectly healthy to do. But that, I don't think, is what they're talking about here the love of money. So, does this mean then, if the love of money is evil, that one has to be penniless in order to be saved? I have a few patients that come and see me once in a while. Every Very often I have a patient come into my office who struggles with this idea of loving money and believing that they have to divest themselves of everything, everything, and live on the street or else they can't be saved. Because if they cherish or value any material substance in their heart, then they're selfish. So they have to be penniless. What would you say to that person? I might gain some therapy tips from you guys. (laughs) What do you say? Take your medicine?
1: (laughs) Where's the focus?
0: The focus. Okay, that's a good one. She's really going at it. She's saying, what's the motive? And you notice the motive there is fear. It's fear. Fear of being lost if I do this. instead of uh, Fear of I'm lost if I hold to some possession and, and I have to do this in order for me to be saved. I have to divest. I can't own anything. They're not really appreciating its motive of the heart, not whether you have possessions that you are illegal owner of. Okay. Does one have to be not penniless, but just not wealthy in order to be saved? Can you be wealthy and be saved? Yes, yes there are many examples in Scripture. I won't give those to you. Um, why did Jesus then, though, tell the rich young ruler that in order for him to be saved, he had to sell all that he had and give to the poor. And this is one of the examples that some of the people that I just mentioned will cite. What Jesus said, right here, look. Sell all you have, give to the poor, everything. Why did he tell him?
1: One thing thou lackest. He lacked something. Yep. And by getting rid of his, what gave him importance and false
0: security. So the rich man, why did... So why was the instruction for the rich man if in fact... And, he, yes, so you're, you're, it's giving him what?
1: False security.
0: False security, meaning?
1: He believed that because he was wealthy, he was righteous.
0: Ah, okay. So wealth for him was evidence that he used to prove that he was right with God. And in a saved, renewed, reborn, whatever you want to use, language state. There was nothing in the heart that needed to happen because the wealth proved his, everything was right. Yes.
1: Plus, just prior to this, didn't um, he say to him, "I've kept the law"?
0: Yep. A child. Yep.
1: So he goes through. the So he was looking at the law as a checklist of, "I've done everything." i, I so, and you know, I think there's been times in my life I've, I've thought that process. You know, first coming into the church, a level you know, four and below, or I think I, okay, I'm, I've kept the Sabbath now. I'm now adjusted my diet. I've done all these type of things, and he realized that that never earned salvation, and and yet there's...
0: Oh, I like where you're going with that. Uh, Russell? He was also talking to his disciples as well, because they
1: they were a culture that believed that the wealthy were righteous and the poor were unrighteous. Simply, And
0: the healthy were righteous and the right. lepers were... Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. When you know, Christ
1: said, you know, it's, it's very difficult for a rich man to get into heaven.
0: The disciples said?
1: Well, who can be saved? then?"
0: So, the rich young ruler who had a security in the wealth that gave him evidence that he believed he was righteous... What did he trust in? Did he trust in Christ or did he trust in his wealth? So notice the heart, he ultimately put his confidence and trust in his money. And Christ was saying, if you don't have all that money, if you pull that support out from under you, if it's gone, you'll have to place your trust somewhere else. If you really want to be, you're here talking to me. If you want to be my follower, you can't be my follower if you don't trust me. And there's an obstacle to your trusting me. And the obstacle to your trusting me is you trust your money more than you trust me. Get rid of the money, and you'll only then be able to trust me. Yes, for that guy. Now, that doesn't mean everybody trusts money. People don't trust money. They can have money, and they don't have that problem. But this guy had that obstacle. Yes.
1: This points to a difference between Christ and some televangelist. You know, it, you notice you didn't say, give the money to me.
0: Go and sell all you have and give the money to me. It was, go and- oh, cool. I like that. yeah that was very 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 insightful thank you for that so is there an old testament story well i think of an old testament story that i think sheds light on this i'll show you the one i think of you might have some of your own have you ever wondered why david was given the instruction not to take a census of israel remember the whole story of the census now, think, think this through. David's the steward. He's the chief steward if you really want. He's the king. So he's the chief steward responsible for the nation. And, and if you're the chief steward and you've got a military, which he does, wouldn't it be sensible to know the size of your nation for a lot of reasons—the uh, number of people who could be put on the draft list if we need, to, if we go to war? I need to know who I can call up. How many boots and uniforms to make? How much food to prepare? What's our budget for salaries for people? How, do we, how many horses do we need for our chariots? Uh, how many spears and swords and arrows do we need to make? I mean, isn't there a logical, reasonable to be a good steward? We need to know these things, right? Yet he, he was told not to do it. In fact, there was serious trouble when he started.
1: Because he was relying
0: on the power of the army to win. So I like where you're exactly right. Up until this point in David's history, where did all his success come? Where did the strength for all of his success come? Uh, he, he defeated Goliath because of his own physical might? No. He defeated the bear and the lion? I mean, all of his victories came because he, every time he had victory, it was trusting God. Every time he went with himself, <laughs> he, he 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 failed. And so what would happen if he had counted up and I've got 100,000 spearmen, I've got 40,000 chariot, 50,000 bowmen and he's got all this this huge massive military do you think that would tend to cause him to feel more trust in god or to feel more trust in the strength of our own personal might because
1: he either won if he came against an army that was bigger than what he had he would be afraid and if he had more than that army he might be
0: so, but what would, the ten- what would the tendency of the army as he grows it, would it tend to move him more towards trust in God or more in trust in self? So then why, and I would tell you today, most of us here don't have our personal armies. How many of you have some, some, some riflemen? And, no, we have savings accounts, stock portfolios, investment properties, and these are the things that we tend to put our trust in and our security in. And I have many patients, Christian patients, come to see me very anxious and stressed, watching the stock market, watching the economy. And I say, there's nothing wrong with being wise and a good steward of the resources the Lord has given you. But where is your trust? Is your trust in your retirement plan? Or is your trust in God? That doesn't mean you make foolish decisions. I trust God, so I'll jump off this building. I trust God to take care of me. I trust God, so I'll just go gamble all the money the Lord's... No, we make wise decisions, but where's our security in seeing that number go up in our retirement plan every month? Or is our security... And I don't know what the economy holds. If I really believe the Bible at the end of time when things get bad, it says our gold is going to rust. What we we, uh, value is going to become worthless. Will I still have security and peace, or will I panic and fall apart? Where's my trust? So, why did 70,000 die after David numbered Israel, or started to number Israel? He didn't quite finish it. He repented before it was over. He became convicted before the census was done. And once he became convicted uh, that he was doing wrong and repented, the prophet Gad came to him and gave him a choice. And his choice was. Do you remember the choice?
1: Fall to your enemies, or fall to God.
0: Three years of famine. Three months of being destroyed by your enemies. Three days of pestilence, the sword of the Lord. He chose the three days. Why did the seventy thousand die? That's the question. Why? Many level one through four thinkers say because he broke a rule. He did something God said not to do, and God punished. He, he got killed. God, God destroyed because God, God can't tolerate uh, breaking His rules. He must kill. Let's, let's let's ask some questions here. Who held back the waters of the Red Sea for Israel to walk through on dry land? Why did the Egyptians die in the Red Sea? Did God did God take an action to kill them, or did God remove a restraining hand that was protecting them from natural consequences? Of what the sea normally does. When Israel was in the desert and snakes came in to bite and a bunch died, where were the snakes prior to that event? Did God suddenly create a bunch of snakes that were not there to bite them? Or had God, because of their loyalty and faithfulness, had a restraining hand that kept the snakes out of the camp? And when they rebelled against him, he said, okay, you want to do it on your own? I'll step back. You can do it on your own. And he steps back and the snakes that are in the desert came in and started biting people. And many died. So, why did 70,000 die here? If you understand how God's methods and stuff work, in these examples, think about the three three options that David had. The first, three years of famine. Where's the rain come from? God's. God is the governor. So he steps back and just like with years later, Ahab, seven. it's not going to rain. Your gods can't bring rain. You don't want me? okay? You're going to do it? I'll step back. going to have famine. Three months of being destroyed by your enemies. Who was it that actually holds the enemies back for, for them? I'll step back. You can do it on your own, but you're not going to win. Three three days of pestilence. Who keeps them healthy and holds the diseases back? I don't think this was a judicial infliction of punishment. It was a powerful therapeutic intervention to remind them that everything they have comes from connection to the source. And every time we take actions that sever our connection with God, we suffer. But many would, if you read some of the language in the Old Testament scriptures, many times God is the one who's described as doing it. Including, if you two places, for, in Samuel and Chronicles, you have two stories of the census. In one of them, it says, God tempted David to number Israel. In the other, it says that Satan tempted David to number Israel. Which is the true version? Satan collusion with God. Well, if you, if you believe the New Testament, the New Testament says that God doesn't tempt anyone. But the Old Testament, in this sense, says God tempted him to. Why would it be attributed to God? Why would it say it this way?
1: You just opened Pandora's book. I was born in uh, the same year that Petrodollar was born, so I might be partial in this one, and resented against money because I still don't have any. But, <laughs> but I believe that uh, as money was born, It was the perfect band-aid for our spiritual infection, because we lost control here, right? Petrodollar, 1971.
0: I don't know what that is. It's
1: the money that is based on the equivalent value in gold. Mm -hmm. And in case of the American dollar, it's... Being taken off the gold standard and just linked to a fiat currency. Yes, the Chinese are doing that now. The band-aid for the spiritual infection was money is like a table game that will express this need for control, and and this and, and enforce this culture of reward and punishment. And the word balance comes into play to, to a uh, extent that we uh, like to attribute to God uh, balance. Like you say, oh, God's love needs some balance from the other side. So I'm going too fast but because we have no time. Go so, uh, money creates uh, this uh, uh, love for, for it because that's what we trust, naturally, and, I mean, unnaturally. We trust something that gives us back the control over uh, Earth. And I think that's so true that some of us, when they have almost all the money in the, on the planet, we want to control the whole planet. I think uh, the love of money, uh, of course, is uh, worse than money. Money is just the tool that we found. And it's so easy to love because it expresses exactly what we think we need, which is control.
0: I think that the point is well made. It's the, am I going to be in control, whether it's with money or with power or with whatever, or am I going to surrender to a higher power and let myself be directed, reshaped, the the clay in the hands of the potter, and go into a purpose that I might not have thought about myself? I think that's well said. Yes?
1: Uh, With regard to your question of why does one account, say, Satan, and the other one, God, Alden Thompson talks about that in terms of God trying to avoid the idea of polytheism, and he's uh, in conflict with this other God, who's Satan, that he sort of, you know, from a monotheistic viewpoint, you know, I'm the only God, and so I kind of take responsibility for everything, whether good or evil,
0: no I think there's some insight in that and I, I like where where Alden's gone with that if everybody heard what that comment was that in the society in the old testament it was polytheism there's there is was, there is was, there was gods there's the god of weather there's the god of of hell there's the gods of the household gods the gods uh um for falling in love there's there gods for everything and so God is, is basically stepping in to say there's one God who's responsible for everything and uh, trying to establish this idea of of monotheism. There's not a good God and a bad God. And to elevate and bring Satan out more fully back then might have caused them in their mindset to, to worship both a good God and a bad God. Um, there, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, but I think it even goes a little bit farther than that, and that is... What does love do when the, when the object of your love is not mature enough to understand the consequences of the decision and puts themselves in danger? So your child goes out and plays in the street. Your five-year-old's playing in the street. You've told them not to play in the street. Do you just relax on your porch? They have instructed them, I'm, I'm confident in obedience now, I'm not going to have to do it. Or do you actually threaten the child? How many would threaten their child if their child was continually playing in the street? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, And might your child, if you threaten them, come to believe at a certain age that they need to be protected from you? Could that happen? And might they believe the problem of playing in the street is you? You're going to cause a problem for them. You're going to do something to them. Now, what have you just done? That You know, as in your mature state, that the real problem of playing in the streets are going to get hit, and they're going to be killed by the car. They can't figure all the cause and effect, can't see down the road. They're they're childish in their understanding. So what do you do? You step in, and you stand between them and the ultimate painful death, and you allow yourself to shoulder the burdens and take on the negative role that in their mind they now attach to you, Mommy, who is powerful, will punish me, and you now have negative connotations attached to you because you love them so much you're willing to stand in that place. You see this through the Old Testament constantly. God constantly steps into that role and allows himself to be described in ways because he loves his children and they're so childish, they cannot see down the road. They can't see they're heading for the cliff of uh, idolatry, which will destroy their souls. And so he steps in and says, I will do this to you. I will boil the pro- I will, I will uh, burn the fires hot. You will feel the full force of my wrath. And you hear this coming from the various prophets. But what happened actually was... The Babylonians came and took him. God didn't do a thing. He stepped back and finally said that, but he warned and warned and warned, just like he would warn and warn and warn, and your kid keeps going out into the street. They eventually get hit by the car. You don't hit them. And this is how I see what's happening in the Old Testament, why God, some, why it's sometimes described this way. In the last paragraph, it says, uh, but money is one mask that Satan hides behind, in order to secure our allegiance, money is one mask he hides behind. Does Satan hide behind other masks? Can you name some other masks besides money that Satan hides behind?
1: An angel of light.
0: Oh, that, yeah, yeah, we're gonna, yeah, absolutely, angel of light. I was gonna say, yep. Comfort. Comfort? I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that one, but I could see that. Yep, I could see that relieving suffering. Yep. Yeah, just one of you, Yeah, good. I like it.
1: Recognition, pain.
0: fame, recognition, yeah, power. How about false science? True science will always reveal God, but so-called science.
1: Opinion, the Holy Spirit.
0: Oh, okay, I like that one too. Yeah, false spirits. How about other? How about human beings, people? How about religion? Does he ever mask himself in religion? Proclamations of seeking good. Does he ever mask behind, I'm out to do good. The dead or the departed. Speaking to the dead, in other words. How about miracles, signs and wonders? How good are you at recognizing where Satan is moving versus where God is moving? How good are you at recognizing the difference? If you see a miracle performed, how good are you at telling where that miracle came from God or came from God? The power of Satan. You don't think he can perform miracles? How do you think Jesus got to the top of the temple on the temptations? Do you think they walked several miles, got out a ladder and climbed up? I don't think so. I think it was some type of teleportation that uh, we currently don't have the technology to do. So I was reading as I was preparing for the lesson in the book called Christian Education. I'm going to read through and we're going to comment as we go through this idea. But think in your mind, how can I identify the activities of Satan that are not open? I mean, it's easy to identify. Come on. It's easy to identify overt, occult worship. It's easy to identify evil of the child molester, the drug dealer, the serial killer. I mean, this is easy to identify as evil, isn't it? What's hard to identify as evil is when the evil masquerades as righteousness. That's the hard. So how do we identify it? There are two classes of... Uh, this is out of the book, Christian Education, page 70. There are two classes of educators in the world. One class are those whom God makes channels of light, and the other class are those whom Satan uses as his agents, who, who are wise to do evil. One class contemplates the character of God and increases in the knowledge of Jesus, whom God has sent into the world. This class becomes wholly given up to the things which bring heavenly enlightenment, heavenly wisdom to the uplifting of souls, every capability of their nature is submitted to God, and, and their thoughts are brought into captivity to christ 1 corinthians three uh, ten three through five bring all thoughts in captivity to Christ and by the way, this is my prayer i hope it 's your prayer to be this kind of a teacher. The other class is in league with the prince of darkness, who is ever on the alert that he may find an opportunity to teach others the knowledge of evil. If place is made for him, he will be slow to press his way into. The, he will not be slow to press his way into the heart. It is true that in the writings of pagans and infidels there are found thoughts of an elevated character, which are attractive to the mind. But there is a reason for this. Was not Satan a light bearer, the sharer of God's glory in heaven, and next to Jesus in power and majesty? Everything in nature comes from God. Yet Satan can inspire his agents with thoughts that appear elevating and noble. Did he not come to Christ with quotations of scripture when he designed to overthrow him with his specious temptations? This is the way in which he comes to man as an angel of light, disguising his temptations under the appearance of goodness and making men believe uh, him to be the friend rather than an enemy of humanity. It is in this way that he has deceived and seduced the race, beguiling them with subtle temptations, bewildering them with specious deceptions. Now, before I go on to the very next paragraph, what do you think this author is going to list next as the subtle temptations and the specious deceptions? He comes as an angel of light. Where do you think, first off, if Satan is coming as an angel of light where would be his place of presentation? Where would he go to present his so-called light?
1: Church. Church.
0: Ah, church environments, uh, religious and people. where people are. He doesn't go out to present light in in, to people who are already caught in the darkness, does he? No. His so-called light you're going to find in the places claiming to be sources of light. That's where people go. Listen to the description of what this uh, temptations and species deception is described by this author. Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which flesh is heir. He represents him as a God who delights in the sufferings of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable, meaning who won't forgive, who holds it against you. Are there Christian doctrines that actually make God look this way? The evils of which flesh is heir. How do sinners sinful human beings operate? What kind of systems do we make and what kind of methods do we employ? Because if we can identify those, then we might be able to step back and go, okay, are we ascribing to God all these types of methods and principles? What methods do we employ when we want to govern others? Do you see it? Can you discern it? Pardon? Pardon?
1: We impose laws and and coercive penalties for breaking those
0: laws. And the beast of Revelation uses what kind of power? No one can buy or sell, say, him who has the mark. In other words, coercive pressure, economic sanctions, methods like this are brought to bear on those who don't agree with us. This is the ways of the world. Do we ascribe God practices this way? If we do, we're buying into the subtle temptations, I think. Keep going on. The next sentence. It was Satan who originated the doctrine of eternal torment as a punishment for sin because in this way he could lead men into infidelity and rebellion, distract souls, and dethrone the human reason. Is there a doctrine in Christianity of eternal torment? How is this, how does this dethrone human reason? How? See, I will tell you how. It dethrones your reason when you try to simultaneously hold as true two things that are antithetical. Antithetical means one, if one is true, it necessarily means the other is false. They can't both be true at the same time. And if you try to hold both true when they're absolutely, by definition in reality, opposites each other. In other words, one's true makes the other false. The only way you can do that is, well, I don't think about that. God's ways are not my ways. His ways are so much higher than mine. I just take that on faith. In other words, my whole human reasoning and thinking has been sidelined and dethroned. I'll give you an example. God is love. Which all Christians will... How many believe God is love in any church? All the hands go up. Okay? How many believe you don't love Him? He'll torture you in hell forever. Well, maybe not all, but a lot of them will go up. Try that on your spouse. If you don't love me, I will torture and kill you. Can, can you get love by tormenting and torturing people who don't love you? Can you get more love that way? It's impossible. It's a violation of the design law of liberty. You cannot get more love that way. Thus, you have to suspend those two. Now, when you start talking about this, some people get really uncomfortable because you say, oh, you're a universalist. Everybody's, there's no consequence. Not at all. Not at all. There's a terrible consequence to sin. And the Bible uses graphic language of eternal burning and fire and torment and reaping. But it's not an infliction from a loving God. Further, what dethrones human reasoning, think about this, which many Christians will teach. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, it says in Psalms, and we didn't choose to be sinners, we were born this way. Uh, Without Jesus Christ, we're going to be lost, so it's important to take the gospel of the world, to preach Jesus so people can be saved. But there are people born in parts of the world, a 15-year-old in some part of the world who grows up in a culture without uh, any knowledge of Jesus Christ, and she, the tribe next to her, assaults her, captures her, rapes her, beats her, and then kills her, and she's never accepted Jesus. Many Christians say she'll burn in hell forever now. But God loves her. (laughs) That dethrones human reason. She's alive for fifteen. Even even if you go to the other end, the person who raped her was a sixteen year old boy, and he's gone around doing nothing but evil for sixteen years. Sixteen years of evil, the just thing for that is a never ending eternity of torment. That's just. Again, it dethrones human. Human, it's unreasonable. It's not reasonable. And then people create these terrible caricatures of God that make him untrustworthy. And so then we have to bring in a whole long litany of doctrines that pile to the ceiling that hide us and protect us from God. I'm covered with the robe of righteousness, washed and cleansed by the blood because the father saw my sin. He really gets angry. God, God is so righteous and holy. He can't tolerate the presence of sin. Sin can't come into his presence. This, This is common stuff, but it's not... When we sin, did God run and hide away because he couldn't tolerate it? Or did God, who knew no sin, become sin for us? He came and stepped into the problem in order to that we might be freed of it and become the righteousness of God. There's so much corruption in, in, in Christianity because we have attributed to God the methods of the flesh. We have to come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in him is. We keep on going with the quote. Heaven looked down and seeing the delusions into which men were led. Yes, and it's delusional to think that God loves you, but if you don't love him, he'll torture you in hell forever. That's 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 irrational. And to the delusion in which men were led, knew that a divine instructor must come to earth. Men in ignorance and moral darkness must have light, spiritual light, for the world knew not God, and he must be revealed to their understanding. And this is the advent here, and we're in the advent season. Truth looked down from heaven and saw not the reflection of her image. The dense clouds of moral darkness and gloom enveloped the world, and the Lord Jesus alone was able to roll back the clouds, for he was the light of the world. By his presence he He could dissipate the gloomy shadows that Satan had cast between man and God. Darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the people. Through the accumulated misrepresentations of the enemy, many were so deceived that they worshipped a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character. How many are doing that today? Every sin must
1: be punished.
0: Urged Satan in that document. But this is, again, modern Baal worship. Remember who Baal was? The son of El, as in Ohim El Shaddai. Baal was the son of El. Uh, Baal was the, the creator of nature and weather, and the god of thunder and rain brought the harvest. Baal fought against the serpent, the Leviathan, fought against the god of death, Mot, and in his battle with Mot, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. That's Baal worship of ancient Israel and uh, Mesopotamia. What's wrong with worshiping the god who is the son of the father, who is the creator, who brings us the harvest, who fights the serpent, who dies for us and rises again? What's wrong with that? Baal required appeasement. You didn't get blessings unless you offered Baal a sacrifice. You had to do something for Baal, and if you didn't, Baal would punish you. That's Baal worship. How many Christians worship a God today who says, if you don't offer me the blood of a human sacrifice who was sinless, I will punish you. That's why Malachi said at the end of time, at the end of time, the prophet Elijah must come again to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons and so forth, to bring the message of love. Keep going. The teacher from heaven, no less a personage than the Son of God, came to earth to reveal the character of the Father to men, that they might worship him in spirit and in truth. Christ revealed to men the fact that the strictest adherence to ceremony and form would not save them, for the kingdom of God was spiritual in nature. Christ came to sow the world, excuse me, Christ came to the world to sow it with truth. Pause. Where is the field that the seeds of truth are sown into? What, it, what is the field that the seed of truth are sown into? Right. Get your mind around that. He came to sow the world with the seeds of truth. That means he's coming to bring truth because Satan is the father of lies, and where do lies have power? They have power in hearts and minds. And the seeds of truth, or the sword of truth, okay, You put all the metaphors together, the gates of hell cannot prevail. And you think in a warfare setting, you're at war, what kind of a weapon is a gate? Do people run into warfare carrying gates? (laughs) Gates are defensive weapons. He stole by deception this species into a rebellion against God through lies, and now he's trying to hold on by putting up a defensive barrier of lies, but the sword of truth, what does truth do to lies? The gates of hell cannot prevail. The sword of truth will destroy the lies and set people free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, he presented to men that which was exactly contrary to the representations of the enemy in regard to the character of God, and sought to impress upon men the paternal love of the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ declares the mission, he had come to earth Uh, Christ declares the the mission he had in coming to earth. He says in his last public prayer, and this is John 17, Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have I uh, have known that you have sent me. And I have declared unto them your name and will declare it. And the love which you have for me will be given to them. When Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, remember what happened? The Lord passed before him and showed Moses the Lord long-suffering, and mercy abundant in goodness and truth, mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and so forth. When we are able to comprehend the character of God as Moses did, remember Moses' face, what it was doing? Yeah. We too shall make haste to bow down in adoration and praise. Jesus contemplating nothing less than that the love wherewith thou hast loved me should be in the hearts of his children. Oh what an assurance is this that the love of God may abide in the hearts of all who believe in him. Oh what salvation is provided for he is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto him by uh, come unto him. In wonder we exclaim, How can these things be? But Jesus will be satisfied with you to know, hear about satisfaction? Okay. Jesus will be satisfied with nothing less than this. Those who are partakers of his suffering, of his humiliation, enduring his namesake, are to have the love of God bestowed upon them as it was upon his Son. Christ is our glorified head, and the divine love flowing from the heart of God rests in in Christ and is communicated to those who have been united to him. This divine love entering the soul inspires it with gratitude, frees it from spiritual feebleness, from pride, vanity, and selfishness, and from all that would deform the Christian character. We are the branches. He's the vine. What is it that prevents us from experiencing the love of God flowing into our hearts? I didn't bring this up today, but you guys have read my books and listened to my lectures. What is it that breaks the circle of love and trust? Lies believed. You believe that your spouse is having an affair even though they're not, but you believe they are, what happens? The circle of love and trust is broken. You close the heart. You must be protected from the one who you cannot trust anymore. Satan lies about God. As we believe those lies and believe him to be this caricature of Satan himself, then we ultimately don't trust him and we create theologies that are designed to hide us and protect us from him. Rather than praying like David of old, search me and see the wicked way in me, O God, Create in me a clean heart. Yes?
1: Don't you think that basis of the confusion that, that really comes into uh, Christian circles is that we are taught from time with babies, first time we understand anything, to hate evil, to hate the wrong. And of course, you know, movies play on this, this instinct that we have to hate evil. So I believe people are confusing hating the evil and sort of somehow um, connecting that to a wrong subconscious view of God and understanding that of God. Because, yes, they'll say God is love, but then at the same time, it's like, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You know, it's, it's like...
0: Yeah, and many people in my practice confuse evil. I see it all the time. Confuse evil with making mistakes. They do. There's, everyone in here wants to avoid choosing evil. But many of my patients are afraid of making mistakes because making mistakes are bad and they feel guilty for making mistakes. But making innocent mistakes with good intention is not the same thing as choosing evil. And and, and people who are not freed from that misconception live in terrible anxiety and fear, always hyper-vigilant, watching and rethinking everything they've done, feeling guilt over stuff that was just innocent. And, and a simple example, there's a difference between making a math error in your check registry and accidentally overdrafting a check and going around and writing fraudulent checks they are not the same. I really agree. One's an innocent mistake that you, as soon as you know, you correct and you make it right. The other one is choosing evil. And many people get those things confused and I think they get them confused and I think much of our society confuses evil and good and tries to make evil look good and good look evil. I to, uh, And we just finished uh, the, the Sabbath lesson. We're on to Sunday now. But I'm going to skip on to Monday because there was something in Monday's lesson I wanted to share with you. <laughs> In Monday's lesson it asks us to read in Deuteronomy um eight uh ten through fourteen, which we want to have time to read. Um well I guess we'll read it real quick. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the land for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the God, uh your Lord your God and observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have multiplied, then your hearts will become proud, and you will forget the Lord. Okay, blah, 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 who led you out of Egypt. Um, The applicable message, not only do I believe that Israel a historical people who had historical, accurate events described in Scripture, much of the Old Testament was selected to go in, and other lives were left out because what's selected has object lesson application for us as Christians, and it says so in the New Testament, that these things are written for our benefit. Okay, and so I'll give you an example of the object lesson applications here. Israel were slaves in Egypt. We are slaves in sin. Moses, born amongst them, uh, and the sinful ruler sought to kill him as a child. Jesus was born amongst thefts and his sinful ruler sought to kill him as a child. Moses conversed with God directly face to face and then went forth to confront the sinful power that was enslaving the people. Jesus conversed with God face to face in heaven, came to this earth and then went out to confront the, the sinful power that enslaves us in sin. Moses led the people through the waters of the Red Sea to a new life in a promised land and freed them from the powers that enslaved them. Jesus leads us through the waters of baptism to a new life and frees us from the powers that enslave us, the powers of selfish and fear Uh, the people were blessed with material possessions house wealth and and uh, as they followed god's instructions we are blessed with spiritual possessions with wisdom peace joy love maturity discernment self-control as we trust and apply god's methods to our lives they were warned if they forget god's instructions that they would lose the blessings and and even be enslaved again and babylonian captivity and we are warned that if we forget to trust god and stop living in harmony with his design protocols for life his laws his principles then we will lose our blessings our character fruits of character and become enslaved to fear and selfishness all over again do you see the object lessons or did I go too fast (laughs) we were running out of time I wanted to go slower it's in the notes Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so amazed at the beauty of your character and the way you run your universe and the principles that you've designed it upon. Your character of truth, love, freedom. We ask that your spirit of truth and love will come into our hearts and minds. Connect the dots of all the things you provided, all the evidences, all the achievements you've fulfilled. Uh, bring the achievements of Christ into our hearts that it may no longer be I that live, but Christ lives in me and give us the power to go forward in your spirit with truth and love to reveal in this darkened world the true light of your character that you may come soon We pray in your holy name. Amen.